Father, we want to thank You for Your Word. We want to confess that we don't come thinking that we have things figured out. Me most of all. God, we, we, we gather as people who are unrighteous, sinful, and in need. And so in our neediness, would You speak? Would You work? Would You act according to Your great Word? Would, would the thing that we hear from Your Word not be the words of man, but, but truly who You are and Your character and from You? And God, be honored and glorified as Your people listen to Your Word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. There is a, probably a time in every organization, every relationship, every life, especially early on, where things are hanging in the balance. Where it doesn't know whether you're going to move on or whether it's going to be the end of it completely. Whether things are going to completely crash down and, and be over or whether they might continue for some time. I saw part of a documentary of, of some sea turtles in Costa Rica. And these sea turtles, they, they come in on the waves and they, they lay lots and lots and lots of, of eggs in the sand. And when the eggs hatch in the sand, then they, they have the, the toughest eight hours of their lives. Right? They, they try to crawl out of these eggs, out of the sand, and then they are filled with a gauntlet in front of them to the sea. This gauntlet is full of, of lots of creatures that will eat them. So they, they have this delicate life where they, they're not really where they're supposed to be. They need to be in the sea so they can't move really very quickly. They've got tough sand to crawl through and to move forward on. And then they've got birds flying over the head that want to just snatch them up. They've got lizards around that are trying to run along the shore. And so their, their life is, is hanging in the balance so early on. Like it's, it's really delicate right when they are born. And, and we kind of are in that same stage with, with Israel. Right? We, we have these 12 sons and a daughter. We, ha- we have the, the people of God kind of forming. They're multiplying. Things are going. But they're this fledgling nation. They're almost in, in embryonic form. They're not kind of in the full form of a nation that they're supposed to be. We have a few sons and their families. And so we're, we're down to a, a decent amount of people, but, but not that big to where it's not such a delicate situation. And in, in Genesis chapter 43, we saw this in 41, we have a famine that is threatening the people of God to completely wipe them out. And it could totally do it. It was it is totally within the reach of this famine to squash the people of God. To completely annihilate them to where there would be none left. But they're threatened in other ways as well. Sin has torn this family apart. From Abraham down, we've, we've seen some, some sinfulness that's, that's gone on in the people of God. Specifically, when we saw Jacob and Esau, there's been sinful favoritism on behalf of their parents. And that has continued on down through Jacob. We've seen greed torn the, the brothers apart where they're jealous of their brother. They wanted to murder Joseph because of he being the favorite son of their father. We saw lust. Work into a family as, as one of the sons sleeps with one of his father's maidservants. We, we've seen all this stuff go on with the people of God. And, and in this early and delicate stage, like they are at the point of collapsing. In the middle of the famine, they need food. But they need more than food. As the people of God in this embryonic state, like they need reconciliation. They need to come together as a, as a family because they're a mess. And yet, this is the people that God is going to use to bless the entire earth, He says. We should be worried. Unless, unless we have a God who's in charge of it all. Unless we have a God who can deliver a whole people out of famine. Unless we have a God who can reconcile those who have been torn apart by the sin in their lives. 
We have this kind of God. We've seen already in Genesis, God deliver His people a couple different times from, from famine that threatened their lives. We've seen God a couple different times in the book of Genesis reconcile. Maybe one of the most of them was between Jacob and Esau, the most memorable one where, where God brought two brothers that hated each other back together in peace. So the very things that these brothers need in Genesis chapter 42 is the things that God has already established a track record for having accomplished in their time. He alone can save. He alone can save people from famine. He alone can bring the reconciliation that they need. And He alone can push them forward to be exactly what they are called to be, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. doesn't happen apart from God. And it just so happens that God has providentially placed one of His servants in the book of Genesis to where He can deliver the brothers from famine and also work to bring about reconciliation. And this is exactly what Genesis 42 and 43 is all about. The famine, as you ended chapter 41, says the the famine was severe over all of the earth. So everything is is being threatened now. Even over the known world, people are being threatened by their lives because they don't have food. But Joseph was working in Egypt to provide. Not just for the Egyptians, but now it seems like the nations are coming to him to buy. So he is providing for more than just Egypt. And he is providing for the survival of Jacob and his family who are in danger. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? What are you doing? Stop sitting around. And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. And so ten, notice the number, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Benjamin was was one of the two sons of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and so you can kind of see how that's still working. But here's, here's Jacob's tribe. They're an embryonic nation, and they're so desperate that they leave the land that God had promised to them. Like the land that they've journeyed so hard to get back to. He says, you need to get out of here because we're going to die here. We have to go to Egypt just for survival. But one son isn't sent. And this is his now kind of favored son. This is Benjamin, the second son of Rachel. As far as he knows, Joseph is dead. And this is the last remaining son from his favorite wife. And so there's still some disunity in the family. There's still some sinful favoritism in the family. There's sin in the camp. And so Jacob, in in kind of some... Some strange ways thinks that it would be it could bring harm upon Benjamin if he sends him on, as if they're not in trouble's way in Canaan where they're threatened with famine and death anyway. But he says to go ahead and he keeps Benjamin at his side. And it seems as if Jacob in some ways hasn't changed at all. That he's still the same one who, who struggles with sinful favoritism within his family. But the question is now, are, what about the sons? How will their response change? How will their reaction and treatment of Benjamin change? Knowing so clearly, being separated out so clearly from the favorite son. Last time that happened, they decided to kill Joseph. And then they kind of sidetracked that and sold him into slavery as if he was as good as dead to them. But the famine is is doing something. It is forcing the people of God. It is forcing Israel and his sons. It is forcing their hand. Forcing them to leave the promised land. Forcing them to go in search of food. Verse 6 says this, that now Joseph, in the middle of all this talk of, of the people of God in the promised land, where they're leaving, like, Joseph, 
was governor over the land, the land that they happened to be going to to get food. It's a reminder so quickly that God is at work. You, you think about all that we've studied, all that we've looked at to get Joseph up to this point, to get the sons of Israel up to this point. I mean, there's so many things that God has been doing just to get it up to now. And it's exactly what has happened is that God has been at work. Psalm 105 says this. It says, When He, speaking of God, summoned a famine on the land... God does that. He's the one that brought that famine on. And He broke all supply of bread. Here's what He'd also done. He had sent a man ahead of them. Joseph. Interesting way to look at it if you're the psalmist. Looking back at the perspective, here's what God has done. He brought the famine. He sent His man ahead. You can look at it from the earthly perspective, the worldly perspective. The brothers sent Joseph to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. And the weather patterns, or the locusts, or whatever it was that caused it, that's what caused the famine. No, God summoned the famine. God sent Joseph ahead of them. So Joseph is in a unique spot. We've got a lot to getting to this point where Joseph is now selling grain that he had stored up because he saw these dreams that God had given him, the, the interpretation to these dreams. And so as famine threatens to kill God's chosen family, one of these people can save them. And he is in advance of them. He is in the land where they need to be. And so, whoo! We're saved, right? We're, we're feeling the relief, right? Famine relieved. But should we be relieved? You might remember the last time that Joseph was with these brothers, he was abused, he was betrayed, he was left for dead, and it's been at least 20 years since that point. 20 years! So maybe Joseph doesn't want to see his brothers. Maybe Joseph doesn't want to save his brothers. Like maybe we know the story, and so we're thinking, oh, this is, everything's going to be great, but like, think of it from Joseph's perspective. Do I want to give these people food? They threw me in a well. They were going to kill me and then they decided to sell me as a slave. That hasn't been that great. Thirteen years of that hasn't been that fun for him, I'm sure. But what famine has done, it has put Jacob's estranged family, his sons, on a crash course. Back together. For survival, for reconciliation. All these things are at hand with an unknown outcome. And continuing on to verse 6. Joseph was the one who was sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Perhaps Joseph had put on some weight. I don't Shaved his beard off if he had one as a 13-year-old or 17-year-old. He's changed his appearance a little bit. Maybe he got a tattoo that they didn't recognize. Like, that can't be him because we don't remember that. Either way, Joseph recognizes them. They do not recognize him. And his greeting to them, not a warm one. Not a great greeting. He is not particularly happy, it seems, to have seen them. And who could blame him? People who sell other people into slavery? Especially brothers? Like, maybe not the most trustworthy people. And so, a little bit of distance might be a wise thing for Joseph here. Like, last time I saw you, you you sold me. So, maybe I'm not so happy to see them. We continue in verse 9. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, you're you're servants. We've come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. And your servants have never been spies. 
So after remembering the, the dreams that he had when he was little, remember he, he was kind of this punk little brother told his brother's dreams like, I saw my thing and everyone was bowing down to me. Like, that's great. And he's remembering this now as they're coming and bowing down. Now notice here, this is only partial fulfillment. There are ten bowing down and in one of his dreams, specifically, eleven were bowing down. So we're missing one, but he still is remembering these things. They're, they're saying like, man, something is going on here. I, I feel like I know what this story is. Like, I've seen this in a dream before. And so it seems as if what Joseph is doing is out of this dream, he speaks. Out of remembering what God has shown him, he, he questions. He, he takes actions. In other words, I think what he's getting ready to do is dream informed. One commentator puts it this way. Just as Joseph planned a strategy for saving Egypt based on Pharaoh's dream, the last couple chapters we saw, now he plans a strategy to save the family both physically and spiritually based on his dreams. And this is going to become really clear that Joseph wants more than just to sustain them. If Joseph just wanted to sustain them, he could do that. He could give them food and send them on their way. Of course, he does a lot more than that. If he wanted to just keep them alive, he could have done that. If he wanted them to bow down and that's all he wanted, he could have done that. If Joseph wants revenge, he can do that. Everything is at his discretion at this point. He can do whatever he wants with them. He has all of the power. All is within his reach, but he pushes for something more than just feeding them. He pushes for something more than just getting revenge. Out of his love for his family, he disciplines them, he tests them, he questions them, all I think and I hope for, for deeper renewal, for deeper reconciliation. And you know what? The people of God should always be like this. We should always be pushing and be satisfied with nothing less than the deepest possible reconciliation renewal that's there. Amen. Always. Thankfully, that's what God's for after us. He doesn't just want us to be well fed and, and happy on this earth. He wants reconciliation with us. And so He pushes for that. He doesn't just want us to have life, but eternal life. Life abundantly with Him. And, and we as His people should reflect this in our own lives. So, so when people come with material needs, like, yes, we want to meet material needs. Like, we want to feed the poor. We want to make sure they have what they need to survive. But we also want more. Amen. We want to say, like, yes, like we, we were happy to help you get food if you are starving. But you need the bread of life. That's your greatest need. Even if you don't realize that's your greatest need, we want deeper reconciliation. And the people of, the, of God, out of their love, should always be pushing for those kind of things. As it seems as if Joseph is doing here. He could have had them bow down. He could have fed them and sent them on the way. He pushes for more. Now Joseph knows, I think, that one brother's missing. He, he knew Benjamin before, so he counts ten of them, and he knows something is, is missing. And his dream had eleven so he strategizes, I think, in order to, to get Benjamin to join them. He continue on in verse 12. He said to them, No, it is, it is the nakedness of the land. Now, look, back up in just a second and just know that, that when Joseph says you're spies, that's not an odd accusation against them. That was something that was very real that could happen. Foreign armies, foreign people could come in spying out the land to then take the land. And so his accusation is not a, not a crazy one. And then saying, no, we're all sons of one family is not a crazy one either. Because it seems ridiculous in some ways to risk all of one family just to spy out the land. And so you, you see, like these arguments are good arguments that they're putting before each other. And, and it says, uh, hey, we're, we're honest men. We're telling you the truth. But, but Joseph is going to push him on that. Because he knows that they've had some lies in the past. No, it's, not the, it's the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said... We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Interesting, they're saying it to the one that's no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are, you are spies. 
So he, he brings this accusation that's it's not far-fetched to them, and he, he kind of pushes in on them, like he has insider information into their family. But they do reply with honesty, and in fact, almost like full disclosure. But Joseph wants to put their words to the test, and so he keeps pressing down. Verse 15, he says, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry the grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Now Joseph changes his plans in a way. Like maybe there's a, maybe there's an early on like it, it doesn't seem like he pushes for revenge, but maybe like a, a hint of that. Like you're all in prison now. We'll deal with this in three days. Like we'll taste their own. Possibly. I don't know how his motivation is, but whatever happens, he switches up his his strategy somewhat. And I think that he does it based off what he says to them when he comes to them. He says, "Do I not fear God?" So maybe it is that Joseph recognized his own sinful, harsh behavior there and says, "All right, we're going to change the strategy up a little bit. We're we're going to not keep you all. Instead, we're we're going to send you all. We're going to leave one." Maybe that's the case. But he does improve on his original plan to test him by just leaving one brother behind. And we continue in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. And so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. The brothers, they, they admit their guilt. They feel like now it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be put on their own heads, what they've done to their brother Joseph. They confess their wrongdoing. They, they think they're, they're paying the price for what they've done. And, and their admission of their guilt is, is key toward any reconciliation that's going to happen as we move forward. That they recognize that they've done something wrong. And now has opened up the door for reconciliation to actually happen. And this is just as true today. That, that biblical reconciliation cannot take place apart from admission of guilt. You, you cannot be reconciled to God apart from recognizing and admitting, confessing that before Him you are guilty. Deserving of all that He would bring upon you in His wrath. Amen. Without that there is no reconciliation. Admission of guilt is an essential part of, of what we would call true repentance. And repentance is this. It's seeing our sin for what it is. It's owning it and it's turning from it. Apart from repentance, there is no life with God. There is no reconciliation. The same holds true for our relationships with one another. Apart from admission of guilt, like we can't truly be reconciled. And here these brothers admit their guilt. And, and so far, the testing that Joseph has put them through, no matter what you think of, of how he's doing it, how he's going about it, so far, it, it seems to be proving out that it's working well. Right? It, it's working on these brothers. They're convicted. They feel the weight of what's, what's going on. And so Joseph, Joseph and his actions, they may seem harsh. And, and maybe they are. Maybe they're a little bit too over the top. But, but we can know from Joseph, especially as we continue on, that they're not... Because he's detached and lacking love. Verse 24 says this at the beginning. It says, Then he turned away from them and he wept. 
And Joseph's going to do this a lot of time. Like, he's a weepy man. Weepy Joseph. Like, over and over again, Joseph's like, oh, Joseph is weeping again. I think it's because he loves his family. Overwhelmed by the situation. Overwhelmed by the words he's, he's just heard. Like, Joseph is not detached from the situation. And so up until this point, it says that he had dealt harshly with them, but with their admission of guilt, he weeps, I think, out of his love for them, and it seems as if it turns on how he treats them. Continue on to verse 24, And he returned to them, and he spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them, and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, and to replace every man's money in his sack. And he gave them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Alright, so... Knowing now, hearing Reuben, the oldest one, the one who would have been in charge of, of what all happens with these brothers in terms of ultimate responsibility. Reuben says, see, I told you not to do this. Joseph hears this and knows, like, okay, maybe Reuben isn't the one who primary, primary one to, to get after here because he is not as responsible as I thought maybe originally. And so he gets the second born, like Simeon. We're leaving him behind. He's more responsible. It's interesting how he singles that one out after hearing Reuben's confession. And so, knowing Reuben wasn't responsible for selling him, he keeps the second oldest Simeon behind while his brothers go. And and he does something interesting. He puts the money that they brought to buy the grain back into their sacks. And this is a crafty move. This man is a wise man. Right? So, here's what he's doing. There's a test with keeping Simeon behind. Will these brothers come back for him? Will they risk Benjamin's life just to come back for Simeon? That's, That's a test in and of itself. There's some risk in it. Like coming all the way back. He knows that they're willing to leave one brother behind. He's done it before. They've all done it before. They all agreed to it. Let's leave this one behind. We'll just move forward from here. So there's a test in that in and of itself. Because it would be risky to come back. But he adds to it by adding this money. Alright, so they might be willing to return with Benjamin. So that they can get Simeon. If they knew there was you know, a slight risk. Right, if we bring Benjamin, we might be under some risk, but we might get Simeon back. Right? They might be willing to do that. It seems like maybe they're turning the corner. They, they admit their guilt. Maybe they don't want to make that same mistake again. But here's what he does. Putting this money back into their sack guarantees 100% that if they return, they know they're in danger. Because they're not supposed to return with the money that you were bought grain with. Doesn't that seem a little fishy? And, and as foreigners coming to a foreign land and a foreign ruler, he is, he is guaranteeing that they are coming back guilty. It doesn't matter if they've actually done it or not. You're coming back with high risk. And so the question is now, like, will they be willing to pay that risk just to get Simeon back? Interesting test he puts before them. And it has its effects. Because as they go out and as they discover this money, it puts fear into them. Verse 26, They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? It works. They're scared. They know exactly what's at stake. And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened. And I'm not going to read this, because they're just saying what is said before. We've got two chapters to cover, so we're going to skip down. The verse 35, they tell Jacob what's going on. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were all afraid. They know exactly what's at stake. But think of it now from Jacob's perspective. Here come these brothers, they have grain, and they have all this money. He knows that they have been deceitful. Reuben slept with one of his maidservants, uh, we have some other issues as Joseph just strangely disappears. Maybe he suspects something there. 
Here they come back without one brother, yet they have money. Maybe they sold Simeon. Like Jacob could totally be thinking, like, you sold Simeon, and now you want to take Benjamin. That's what he's, they're getting ready to ask. So you could see how he could see this with a, a jaded perspective. Like, did you guys, it seems a little fishy. You have all the grain, and yet you have all your money. And one brother's missing. Doesn't add up. Maybe Jacob is suspicious. And so this puts a gap between the father and the sons that seems to widen as we continue this chapter. Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. He, he seems to think that Simeon's gone. It's over with him. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left, <laughs> as he looks at the other brothers. This is the only one left of his favorite wife, Rachel. Now you see, there's, there's some issues here with Jacob. He's the only one left. And if harm should happen to him on the journey that you are, you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. So full of self-pity, Jacob doesn't do anything to help the wedge that stands between all of this family just seems to widen even further. And, and Reuben's proposal, although it seems pretty good, like does nothing for Jacob. Not in his mind. And, and ultimately isn't a good solution. And Jacob denies it outright. But once again, with this famine pressing in, the famine which God summoned, like they're not going to be able to just remain in the land as they were. And so it forces their hand again. 40, chapter 43, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to them, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with me. And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see his face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the, tell the man that you had another brother? What were you thinking? Like, just forget that he exists. And then all over, live over here as if he's the only thing that exists. Verse 7, they replied that the man questioned us carefully, almost like he had insider information. Like he, He's a good questioner. He questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down. So this, this insider information has gotten Joseph to force their hands to where they, they have to make a move. They have to do something. And they continue, verse 8, what are, they, what are they going to do? How are they going to get themselves out of the situation? And Judah steps up and he says to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will rise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So now you see almost like a, a two brothers offers. Reuben, he offers his sons. First, his first kind of like response was like, here, take my sons and their families. Like, hopefully that satisfies you. Judah steps up and he says, take me. Here, have my head if I don't bring him back. Judah now has, has, has almost assumed leadership. Reuben has already botched that several different times. And, and Simeon has botched it. And Levi has. They've all failed. 
Judah steps up to assume leadership. And we, we've seen that Judah's got all of his set of own issues, but, but maybe he turned a corner in chapter 38. Maybe he's walking in a way that's a little bit different. And he steps up assuming leadership, and, and his offer eclipses easily Reuben's offer to his father. He steps up and he makes this compelling offer. Take me and my head if I don't bring him back. I will keep... Benjamin's safe, and if I don't, you can have me. And so Judah steps up in the, the favor of and in line of both Benjamin and Simeon. Because if they don't go, Simeon's done. And if they go without Benjamin, like they're scared of Benjamin going and, and getting some harm. And so Judah steps up in a, in a good way here, and his offer as a persuasive man persuades Jacob to send them. And so he's going to send them on with, with gifts. Their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds. Take the best of the land. Like let's, let's make him happy. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. And perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Jacob finally gets to the point of releasing Benjamin to them. And though Jacob doesn't seem uh, that great in this passage, doesn't come off as, as this man of God who's, who's grown in his faith, as there's still signs of, of, of deep sin in him, favoritism. There's still signs of faith. Because what does Jacob do here? He, he, he says, he sends him, he finally sends him. As he does it, he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy. And that's an interesting phrase, God Almighty. We've been using different terms for God all along the way. Sometimes they're significant. Sometimes they're just like, this is the name we use for God. Here it's a little bit different. God Almighty. When he uses this phrase, God Almighty, it, it brings into the mind, it has this connection to the, the covenant promises that God has made with Abraham and on down from him. And so in chapter 17, you see, you see this. Starting in verse 1, God is speaking to Abraham and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And so God reveals Himself again to Abraham. He makes and reaffirms the covenant promises He made to him at the beginning. And He reveals Himself as what? God Almighty. And so as Jacob finally releases Benjamin to go, go back with the other brothers, perhaps he does so reminding himself of this covenant. That God is going to multiply me greatly. That is what He's promised to us. And so surely He wouldn't want me to be bereaved of two sons. Maybe He's reminding Himself of those promises that, that no matter what, God will do this. He will make us a great nation. He is going to use us. Maybe He's reminded again and reminding Himself of this covenant God who's been faithful every step of the way to, to keep this family alive. But it seems as if what this is is a, a releasing but also a prayer. He, he prays for them. <laughs> May God grant. He, he's asking. He's praying. He's beseeching God for them. May God grant this. And he seems to have some resolve. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Grant mercy, and then he resigns himself to the outcome, whatever it may be. If I'm bereaved of my sons, then I'm bereaved. And so ultimately, it seems like Jacob, is he lands at a place where we all have to land eventually. As he casts himself upon the mercy of God. Resigned to whatever God's mercy should decide. Amen. Now all of us struggle with the thinking that like Jacob had. That, that if maybe if things are here in front of me, if maybe I can keep them close by my side, then I can control it. Then I can keep it safe. 
that things will be good and, and nothing, no harm will happen. But the reality is, is that Benjamin was no safer next to his father's side than he was going into Egypt. There's a famine in the land. It's going to kill both of them if they stay there. If they don't get food, they're both going to die. And so he's no safer with his father in Canaan than he was in Egypt. But he was always, from his very beginning, as we all are, at the mercy of God. And we have to recognize that everything, our very lives, our kids' lives, are at the mercy of God. Making us willing to surrender all because we know this is God Almighty we're talking about. Not some stranger God. This is the God who revealed Himself to us. Who wants relationship with us. This is why He made a covenant. This is the God who has been faithful to this covenant. So when we're saying that we're, we're casting ourselves upon the mercy of God, we're reminding like this is God Almighty. He's faithful and He's gracious. And so ha- we need to get where Jacob was. Casting ourselves upon on God's mercy. Like if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. But I'm at the mercy of God as I always have been. Parents, this is, this is too easily applied to us as we see a father and a son, we, we can too easily have the same struggle with our own children, not wanting to release them. Part of this is really good. We have some great parents here. You love your kids greatly. Man, that, that comes from a really good spot. Jacob loves Benjamin greatly. We're not faulting him for his great love of Benjamin, right? That's not the problem. You cannot love your children too much. The issue is not with how great you love your children. The, the problem is, is that we don't love God enough. So we, we love our children, but the way to best love them, the way to love them rightly is to love God supremely. Amen. And out of our supreme love for God, that overflows then to our children. That's how we love them greatly. And we can't love too much if that's the case. We can't love them too much. And when we love them rightly, we're able to release them. Because we recognize that from the beginning of their lives into every moment after that, they've been cast upon the mercy of God whether we've recognized it or not. As are our own lives. Right? The truth is, is that all of us and all of our kids and all that we have are on the mercy of God. They're not in our control. We have seeming control sometimes, but we do not have control. Death and some of those things bring that so starkly in front of us, right? That this is out of control. I cannot control this thing. If you haven't recognized it, you need to. Like, we are all cast upon the mercy of God. And specifically with children, this seems to be so prevalent. Maybe because I'm a dad of young kids. It seems so big in my mind. But one of the most common... One of the most common barriers to missionaries is their parents. One of the biggest barriers for young missionaries especially, student missionaries especially, are their believing parents. Now, praise God for many, we have some here, who haven't been a barrier for their children going out to foreign lands to proclaim the gospel, but have instead been a catalyst. Praise God for you. We have many here. And I, I would say ask them, Ask them, and they're going to tell you all sorts of reservations that they have, and have had, and will continue to have. But they are casting all their lives, their kids' lives upon the mercy of God, I promise you. Parents with kids especially, we are given a stewardship. All of us are given a stewardship of all that we have, our time, our talents, our resources, our kids. We're not given an ownership, we're given a stewardship. We're we're to handle it faithfully. And so we are commanded, as as parents, we are commanded to to raise disciples and send them out. Not to raise up treasures and to keep them. Or have trophies and admire them. It's not what our aim is. 
We're meant to shoot arrows at the heart of the enemy, not make them trophies that we place on a mantle. Keep me accountable to that. Same is true of our job. Our family, our kids, our own lives. We're all cast upon the mercy of God. We are given a stewardship over these things, not an ownership. We are to surrender it to God. And if we die, we die. If we're bereaved, we're bereaved. So as Jacob resigns himself and his sons to the mercy of God, he finally allows, here's what's going on, he's finally allowing reconciliation to flow. It's been delayed because Jacob wouldn't let him go. Now it's, it's able to flow should Joseph be interested. Alright, so chapter 43, pick up again in verse 15. The men, they, they took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, and they arose, and they went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of, this, of his house, he said, bring the men into the house, and, and slaughter an animal, and make ready for the men. They are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him, and he, he brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks this first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. Like this is, this is not a good sign for them. They're going in even deeper into the house. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and they spoke with him. They're, they're nervous. They're scared for their lives. And they said, oh my Lord, we came the first time to buy food and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our, our money in full weight. And so we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We, we do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied to them, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father, which interesting enough, Joseph's steward, servant, knows... He said, your God, your father, has put treasure in sacks for you. I received your money. And he brought Simeon out to them. Everything is going well. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them, and they bowed down to him to the ground. All this initial fear in them. Things, things don't seem to be right. We have all this money, now we're going into his house like this is a bad scenario. But the steward comes and he speaks peace into them. And from that time on, things go really well. Keep your money. Come inside, you're going to eat in here. Here's Simeon. All things are going really, really well. It's just as if God is, is at work here, right? <laughs> like Funny that this is all working out so well. And then they come in, and Joseph comes in, and what do these eleven now do? What are these? All these brothers are there. What do they do now? They bow down. Interesting how that worked out when we saw that dream all the way back in chapter thirty-seven. So now we have this dream fulfillment, even though it took how much turmoil to get to that point? Joseph thrown into a pit. Joseph sold into slavery. Joseph working on his life as he's falsely accused. Joseph doing all these things. And the brothers aren't much better off. They're divided. Judah's doing his own thing in chapter 38 that we, we talked plenty about. I mean, we've got all these issues and all this great turmoil, and now we're here. Dream fulfilled. They're doing exactly what God had revealed to Joseph. And Joseph's love and concern continues, though. He wants more. He leads into more questions. He inquired, verse 27, about their welfare and says, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Like, he's got to play the part, right? That, that man you spoke about, is he still around? They said, your, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves 
And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He knew Benjamin before, but now he sees him again. It's been 20 years. Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and he wept there. Here he is weeping again. Was he harsh throughout the story? Maybe. Unloving, not a chance. Verse 31, Then he washed his face and came out, controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. And they served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. But that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his. And the men looked at one another in amazement. And portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and they were merry with him. So for this chapter, we've got one last test. You're all going to get something. You're having a feast in, in, in Joseph's house. It's prime minister of Egypt's house. It's a pretty great honor. And he's feeding you. He's giving you more than just grain. You're, you're getting this feast provided for you. And he's going to give five times as much to Benjamin. So at lunch, you're like... Pick your favorite, try this out, see how it goes over. And we can't get anything by our little like justice police, you know? Like, oh, he got more than me, or I didn't get one of those. Like, over and over again. And so here we have one last test. Joseph, I, obviously, he's suspicious of their jealousy, of their favoritism, of their desire to get rid of anybody that would replace them as the favorite. And here's Benjamin, the other one. He doesn't know what all has been happening. And he's the other one of his sons that he thought, here's from Rachel, his favorite. Jacob's his father's favorite wife. And and so maybe there's jealousy as before. So let's just test this out. Let's give him five times as much. Let's see how they react to that. And here's the conclusion. The end of verse 34. They drank and they were merry with him. That's informative. That they were merry with their brother who has five times as much tells us a lot. It seems as if these brothers have changed dramatically. They're at peace. They're having fun. Benjamin can have five times as much. We don't even care anymore. We didn't die. They're happy. And so as the brothers pass this test, what happened is is that Jacob's prayer, that God grant them mercy on their, their journey, is answered. God has been merciful to them. Now, we don't get any details on what changed for these brothers, but we have to know this is the work of God. That they're even there is the very work of God. So something is going on, and God is at work. These were brothers that were so torn apart by sin that they wanted to kill one another. Now they're eating together at peace and with merriment, and and even while their little brother has five times as much. And as Psalm 105 says, it was God who summoned that famine. And it was Joseph that He sent ahead of them. All this that God was doing, so that God's mercy might be so clearly seen in, in God's people. Here we have Israel, this embryonic nation, fledgling nation, trying to get started, threatened with extinction by a famine. They, they go from being threatened by a famine and to be torn apart by their sin and favoritism, losing even more of their brothers to a well-fed family, working toward reconciliation, and it's close at hand through Joseph's testing. As the people of God today, we, we don't always see how God is working. We, we don't get to see when... They didn't know when Joseph was thrown into the pit that God was at work. Joseph didn't know, likely, when he was falsely accused that God was at work. 
They didn't know when they came back with money in their sacks that God was at work. We don't know where. We don't know why all the time. We're not given all of that, but we can know that, that God can take His mess of a people and accomplish His work through them. So what He does here. And God takes the pieces of this broken family. God takes the pieces of, of Israel that He might continue His work through them. A, a work that is going to bless all the nations of the earth. Now we get to look back and we get to say, God, God did that. All these brothers that had, had kids and they had kids and they had more and more kids all the way leading up to what? The one who would bless all the nations of the earth named Jesus. Amen. God's mercy is at work. And we as the people of God get the opportunity, the privilege to, to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God knowing that this is God Almighty. Amen. Let's commit ourselves to that. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your mercy. We need it every morning. Indeed, you, you promise it's new every morning. God, thank You for the work that You do that we don't even see or recognize or even talk about. God, praise You for never shifting out of Your character. You're a merciful God. You're going to act in mercy all the times even when we don't see it. You're faithful. You're gracious. You're just. Those are going to continue even if we see it. Or not. Thank You for that. God, would you, would you help us as Your people? As we gather together, would you grow our faith in you, God Almighty? Would you send us out, cast upon your mercy? For those who don't know you, Father, I pray that you draw them. They would see your mercy and it would lead them to repentance. And they too would surrender all in following after you. God, we ask that you would build your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.